Hey guys, what's up? I had the chance today to sit down with two of my really good friends and two really, really smart guys. They're both seniors at the wildlife program at Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College way down in Tifton, Georgia. It's uh, it's one of the premier wildlife and natural resources programs in the southeast and probably one of the hardest degree tracks that I can think of. I mean, these guys have to know hundreds of the different scientific names of, of plants and animals. They can walk out pretty much into any stretch of woods or, or wetlands anywhere and tell you pretty much what, what's out there, what plants and animals are out there, what they're used for, how they impact the environment, and what we need to do on our end to maintain that and make sure that it's healthy and sustainable for a long time. And so it's, a, it's always a good time to sit down to them. They have a really cool perspective on the way the world works and, and how things operate. And had the chance today to sit down with a pretty brief episode and talk to them about a lot of those, a lot of those big important wildlife issues that they're working on right now. So I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Hey guys, what's up? Uh, sitting down today with two of my good friends from back at college. So go ahead and introduce yourself. My name is Rob Rosar. My name is Kyle King. Uh, and so Rob, Rob and I were roommates, um, what, two years, a year ago, two years ago, something like that. And then Kyle, we never, we never actually lived together, but we had a bunch of classes and stuff, mm-hmm. hung out all the time. So y'all graduate in the spring? Both we of? will. Gra- both graduate in May. All things go according to plan. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that is the plan. Yeah. And now, uh, what what majors are y'all? We're seniors in wildlife management. Here at A-Bank. A-Bank. Yep. That's pretty sweet. And that's uh, that's Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College. For people who don't know, it's a um, pretty sweet little junior college down in South Georgia. It's uh, I think twenty five hundred students, something like that. Something yeah. like that. It's pretty close. Yeah. But we and we're uh, growing. Yeah, it's growing a little bit every year. The wildlife program's really good. I went here for two years, graduated, and they kicked me out. Uh, <laughs> which they're, No, they're actually trying to get me to come back, but that's a different story. Uh, so you guys are both wildlife majors, uh, and wildlife is a pretty big deal down here, especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, but pretty much anywhere you go across the country, I mean, it's it's an issue for almost everybody. We've changed a lot of our environment and the way things look in the last couple of years, and we've started to figure out that we kind of need to Go back to doing some things some different ways. Mm-hmm, that's right. And the thing, I mean, like the big thing, especially around here, is, is clean farming. It's a big thing that everybody wants to try to do. Is they want to have every all their fields look pretty and everything cleaned up, and there not be any extra plants out there. But it's not particularly good for wildlife. Yeah, that's the problem with a lot of this clean farming is you're getting rid of a lot of your native ground cover that our native wildlife really depend on. So without them, they're starting to die back. For example, the quail. The northern bobwhite, they're, sh- they're just starting to die back. And their numbers have plummeted like 80% in the past 100 years. So, Yeah, quail's a big problem. We have uh, we have some quail on our land, and they're definitely very, I don't know that finicky is the right word, but I mean they have they need a very specific set of things to stay they, alive. They, do. they have to have a lot of different habitat types in a small area right. to survive and thrive. So. You need, we call it a mosaic of habitat types, so... Basically, if you're a farmer and you're listening, it's basically if you have a farm and even if you have 10 yards of just weeds or native ground cover on the side of your farm, it may not look quite as attractive from the roadside, but you're helping the wildlife out a lot because you're 
creating travel corridors for them to go in and there's all kind of uh benefits and seeds and everything they eat and that's right yeah because one of the big things with quails i can't fly well i mean they can but not right like they don't bring yeah, yeah. they, they, they bust they yeah they'll run mostly and then if a predator is coming or hunter they'll bust and fly mm-hmm. 20 30 yards or a little yeah. bit farther but and one big thing i've noticed too is around so we've got big pasture land we raise cows and we're not big pasture land but we have pastures um, and they'll come out there and eat a lot, of, especially when they've the grass is headed out and it's got all the seed heads on it. They'll come out and eat. Mm-hmm. If they've got to cross a road or something, they've got to cross a big cross a big open spot. That's like a big for them because they they got to run across that. So that's mm-hmm. a big yeah. They'll get danger zone yeah. quick by like a Cooper's hawk. Yeah, for sure. That's a big issue with them, and it's um, especially around in, in South Georgia. I mean, the territory is just not there anymore. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's, I think the loblolly pine, like the hard pine forest, like the savanna forest, mm-hmm. is I think like 97% smaller or something crazy like that yeah. than what it You're was. You're talking about long leaves. Yeah, yeah, yeah the long leaves. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of, yeah. yeah. And a lot of these places that are wooded now, and they're doing like commercial tree farming in with pine plantations or whatnot, with usually loblolly or slash pine, because those are a little bit faster growing species and... They get better return for money, but not as great for wildlife. So yeah, and well, they're planting too dense. The, yeah, too. That's a problem. And then they're not burning as frequent. And that's a big problem: is people not burning as frequent. Yeah, that's and that's one of those things too. If you don't know much about forestry and wildlife and conservation, it seems very counterintuitive. Just why would we want to burn right. all this off? Mm-hmm. We, get help us, we get out. We get out all the time. You know, if we're burning. Because even in classes, we go out to properties and we'll do prescribed burning. And um, there's a science to it, but people ask, you know, why are you burning this land? You know, that's, aren't you supposed to be saving the land? But what they don't understand is that prescribed burning is a part of the way it should be. Mm-hmm. It's what the Native Americans did. Um, it, It'll set back like hardwood encroachment on land. So basically, hardwoods coming in and like depleting uh, needed habitat for mm-hmm. like quail and other species. Um, yeah, quail are upland species. And most of the time, if you do not burn, those hardwoods will start creeping up into your uplands. And that's when the problem comes because hardwoods will start reaching into the mid story and then overstory, whatever start shading out all of your native plants and ground cover that quail depend on and other, a lot of other species. So, so what, you said upland a couple of times. What is upland? Like, what does that actually mean? So upland is just like your drier species. It's like, so you have your um, hardwoods in, in your bottoms where, it, where you're on your mesic sites. And mesic just means like wet. Like, and then your hydric is like super wet. Mesic is somewhere in between. And then you have your uplands, which is xeric sites which are drier so in between your mesic and xeric sites is your upland and everything like that so that's where most of your game birds like quail and turkeys are going to hang out yeah it's kind of higher drier ground a little bit Mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense and you said the native americans used to burn off forest land Mm -hmm. right they did that's pretty wild yeah had what you say for sure how do we know that um 
they knew that it benefited their crops and um, it also helped. They knew that the wildlife needed uh, native plant species and for succession to be set back um, to attract the wildlife. So Mm -hmm. that way, basically what we're saying, they knew that if it was just hardwoods that took over, then the wildlife would go somewhere else. So. And they, they saw that through like lightning strikes would cause fires to happen and they would see that and then see the outcomes of that and see the new native ground cover coming up, especially in like May and June, the fires would occur, which is called the natural burning season. And that's from like May 15th to the end of June. Or is it April, Mar- Mar- April 15th, April 15th through the end of June. That's right. But, yeah, yeah we've burned sites. Um, literally, say we burn a site today. Tomorrow, if we burn during that natural fire season, you you would probably, there's a good chance you would see turkeys mm-hmm. in that same spot we burned the next day. Yep. I mean, they'll still be ashes on them mm-hmm. coming It'll up. It'll still be smoking, and there'll be turkeys will be out there. Quail. Coming in. They'll, they'll just be out there picking seeds because it's a lot easier for them to get the seeds and stuff. Right. And then say you get a rain a day after you burn. Well, two days later after you burn, you have new green stuff, and that green vegetation is so nutrient efficient and has so much nutrients just in the new green growth, and everything depends on that, especially that time of year. Because yeah, you have sure. chicks and you have poults and like fawns even. Yeah, it's a interesting that because um, there's I was doing some reading stuff on like human medicine stuff the other day, and it's one of the weird things that they're starting to figure out. Um, which I have learned that we know way more about animal health and nutrition than we do humans, in my opinion. But they um, they've started to figure out that if you eat a lot of those, so like sprouted, like take a seed and sprout it out to it's just a little. Mm-hmm the sapling plant basically and if you eat more of that that's supposed to be way, he- will be way healthier because it's yeah it's that mm-hmm. same thing it's really nutrient dense because those seeds have are designed to start off to make something mm-hmm. and there's a lot of startup nutrients that need to go into a new plant so if you eat those it's really healthy for you it's the same thing for wildlife cool. yeah and it's hard for those things just to pop up in a forest because mm-hmm. there's yeah. so much competition mm-hmm. and one thing too that i don't think people realize unless they spend a lot of time in forest land is the trash that builds up. Um, and for people who don't know what I'm talking about, it's not trash. You think of like trash you throw in your trash can just when a branch breaks or leaves fall off. Yeah, your like, duff. Yeah. So your duff layer. See, if you don't burn off, say, every five to ten years, that'll just mound up. And then you have a high risk of a wildfire occurring by a lightning storm or whatever. So that's another reason why we burn like we do is to help prevent your wildfires from occurring and occurring in places that you don't want it to occur. Yeah, because especially when you look at stuff out west, I mean, they've, they haven't burned off in so long that when stuff does catch on fire, it's a huge problem. Right, it's, oh, built, yeah, it's catastrophic. Up built up over time. So when if something does happen, it's absolutely catastrophic, and that's why we try to, depending on what we're managing, if we're managing for quail, uh, it's usually two to three year mm-hmm. burn intervals, so we'll burn every two to three years, depending on the site. Or for white-tailed deer, it's normally give or take. Um, it could be three to five years 
Um, it just keeps everything set back, and like like y'all were saying, it mm-hmm. helps with uh, if there was a wildfire, then it wouldn't be as catastrophic, and you could get in there and get control over over it. Yeah, and even these pine plantations, they they need to start burning more often as well because it'll help their trees grow better if you start reducing competition from your hardwood encroachment. So, yeah, that's for sure. Cause those, and for people who don't know what they're like, pine trees are considered, uh, not, I guess a softwood. Yeah, they are softwood. Okay. I didn't mm-hmm. know if that was the word for it. Cause there's hardwood and softwood. So mm-hmm. hardwood is like your oak trees and your, which mm-hmm. we don't have any around here, but ash trees and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So if it grows a lot slower and is a lot, the wood itself mm-hmm. is a lot harder. It's yeah. That's on hardwood. down here. Pine trees can be mature. So I'm saying like loblolly and slash, they can be mature in 15 years, harvestable for pulpwood. So that's a big industry down here is the pulpwood industry because we make a lot of paper and paper products. That's yeah, where all kinda, that comes from. It was pretty surprising to me when I started traveling around and seeing different stuff that people don't just have trees like that around. Because, I mean, most people, yeah, I guess I would say like most people who own land, of any size have a piece of forest land in Georgia in some shape or form. And that, yeah, a lot of that goes into paper production. It goes into a lot of different stuff, but you get outside of really the East coast. I mean, pretty much all the way up and down the East coast, people have forest land, but you get out Mm -hmm. West and there's just not trees Mm -hmm. at all. You go to Nebraska, Iowa, you won't see a tree for days. I mean, it's just not there. That's wild. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, cause the fields themselves, especially the ag fields, like the farms and stuff, the fields really aren't much bigger. But you see, you know, a 400-acre field and then another 400-acre field behind it and then another 400. <laughs> like, you can just see for yeah. 10 miles in one direction, which yeah. just isn't possible around here. So it's it's been pretty interesting to see just that difference, too. So why... Like, why did you guys get started in wildlife? Because, Rob, you come from Gray which is a fairly gray Georgia, which is between uh, the bigger cities around us, basically right between Macon and Milledgeville, if anybody's familiar with that area. Um, Well, I grew up just basically hunting and fishing, and I grew to love it and love the outdoors, and I wanted to understand how I could manage the land to create suitable wildlife habitats for those wildlife that I love so um, that was my biggest thing I just I have a love for the outdoors and I I want to be able to um, (coughs) carry the success of wildlife into the future Mm -hmm. yeah that's about my same story so I'm from about 30 miles west of Atlanta and I always grew up hunting fishing with my family and I, I love the outdoors, and that's that's really why I got into the wildlife program here at ABAC, because I knew we had one of the best in the state and even in the southeast. So it's just, I, I really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot, and I've grown to appreciate even things such as non-game like snakes. So Yeah, that's for sure. It's um, I mean, just coming to ABAC, I mean, you just kind of know the wildlife program is – is good. I mean, that's just a rumor that you mm-hmm. hear from everybody. But yeah, it definitely is one of the best, best that I've heard of anywhere. Um, and it's hard too. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's no joke. Yeah, very, you gotta love very it. Challenging. Oh yeah, that's for sure. Because everybody comes down here and they're like, "Oh, I want to 
Hang out with wildlife. deer all day. Yeah. yeah. yeah no, yeah. it's not. Yeah, that's an, there's a huge science behind it. Yeah, game um, management is everything. game management is a small portion to our field, but yeah. it, I mean it's fun. People have to do game management or whatever, but um, a lot of non-game species, such as the snakes I was saying earlier, they have their purpose here. So when I see people on Facebook or whatever killing snakes for no reason out of fear or what whatever because they're striking at their dog well 90 percent of your snakes here in georgia or in the southeast aren't even venomous so most of the time it's just a useless it's kill and it's just a waste of a life they have their purpose they eat most of the time they just eat small mammals like rats and mice and frogs and like salamanders or whatever but they really don't bother you that much. Even the venomous ones, if you if you walk up to them and look at them, they're usually curled up or whatever, but they're usually not aggressive. They're not going to chase you like most people say they will. Like yeah. I've I've walked up on cottonmouths before, poked them with my snake stick, and they they don't do anything. They open their mouth just to show you that like, hey, I'm danger. I'm I'm venomous. I c- I could get you, but. I like poke them or pick them up and they'll just slither off back into their creek or whatever. But it's just, it, it hurts to see all these snakes getting persecuted for nothing really. Yeah, I don't know. It's a weird thing because, I mean, anybody, like, uh, not any, a lot of people are afraid of snakes. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a lot of it is unfounded. I mean, snakes are well aware of the the fact that you were mm-hmm. three or four times the size they are. Yeah, they're, they're not, not going to mess exactly. with you. They know that. Just like, yes, I grew up being taught that all snakes are bad and whatever. And yeah, I have, I have killed snakes for no reason before. And I know now that I shouldn't have, but that's just part of education. That's what I'm trying to get to all you other people that might hear this. There's no reason in killing snakes just out of spite. Maybe, for instance, you have a copperhead or a cottonmouth or rattlesnake near your home. And you have kids whatever playing outside well in that case sometimes it's okay to get rid of them but most of the time it's just not necessary especially like on farms all these people killing rattlesnakes stuff it just hurts to see that because i mean i've only seen a handful of rattlesnakes and i want to see more yeah that's for sure even they're beautiful even like rat snakes or anything uh any kind of snake what do you think is going to happen say 70% 70% of people that come across snakes, they, they kill them. Or, um, what do you think is going to happen to the small mammal population like rats and mice? It's going to skyrocket. I mean, it's not... Snakes serve their purpose, too, basically. Is the, yeah, that's for sure. Is and one thing, too, I mean, the coyote population in this country is skyrocketed. I mean, yeah. it, they're everywhere now. And I think a lot of that is the fact that we don't have a lot of those other small predators like snakes and different stuff that used to take care of rats yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I mean, those just aren't there anymore. Yeah. So part, they've kind of grown to meet that niche. Yeah. Part of the reason the coyotes have um, grown so much in their population size here in the Southeast is because we used to have red wolves and we used to have mountain lions, which is your panther, like Florida panther, whatever, whatever you hear. And also black bears used to be prominent here. And now we don't have that because we we all we killed them off, basically. So yeah. there's very few of them left. Even yeah, there's rumors of uh, around where I live, 
there's rumors of a panther being in the woods somewhere, but I've never heard. Oh yeah, of it. I'm sure there I've is. Never, I've never yeah. seen any proof of it, but I've there, had enough people tell me yeah. that they've heard one. That I think there's one out there. Yeah, there, there's panthers in South Georgia. There's panthers in North Georgia. Yeah, their home ranges are so big; they'll just travel a lot. Usually, it's young males. Yeah. They'll just be traveling, and they won't hang around that long because they're searching for a mate, and they're not going to find it usually. So they're just they'll cover hundreds of miles in a year. Yeah, well, and they're going to stay away from people too. They don't yeah. want anything to do with us. Yeah, yeah, I was able to do an internship at a wildlife plantation, um, and we had some trail cam pictures of uh, panther. We basically didn't tell anybody because, you know, the, some some of the public, like, freaks out and makes a big deal. But, you know, they're just, they're out there and yeah, everything has its purpose. But they're, well, they're I mean, out yeah. there. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're, I have a feeling there's a lot more of them than we realize. I just because, so. like you said, they move around And they're so nocturnal yeah. most of the time. And, yeah. and people don't, people don't go looking for them, really. Yeah. I mean, some people do, but. If you've got a big field and you haven't been out there looking for signs of a panther, there could be one there and you'd <laughs> yeah. have no idea, especially oh, yeah. with all this forest land. Yeah. People say they see black panthers sometimes and, well, I hate to break it to you, but you probably didn't see a black panther because they can't they can't occur because the the melanistic gene they, that they cannot carry isn't happening. So um, usually if somebody says they see a black panther, it's usually far away in a shadow at dusk, and that's why they think it's a black panther. The only um, cat that can carry that melanistic gene is the leopards, like in South America. So that's the only species in on this continent. Yeah, because there's not any leopards. I mean, there's some leopards in Mexico, right? But there's not any in North America. Yeah. In, like, South Mexico, there's yeah. your leopards. Yeah, I didn't think that came any further than that. Yeah. That'd be, I don't know. That's one thing, too. I mean, people get really weirded out about big cats. And I can't really say that I blame them. But, I mean, we have oh, so many... Scary. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're really scary. But we have so many cats. Like, you have cats in your house. Mm-hmm. They're really not any different. They're just, like just a tiny 18 line. times the size of your <laughs> house cat. Yeah, yeah, they would mess you up, though, if you ever ran up on one in the woods somewhere. Oh, yeah. And you scared it. Because that's the thing. Unless you really scare them, <laughs> yeah. they're probably not going to hunt you down. Exactly. This is not a horror movie. They'll, eat, they'll probably eat your calves or eat. Yeah. they'll eat some deer, yeah. But even the, they're not taking that many calves or that many of your deer to start persecuting them and start killing them off because they they serve their role they're here for a reason yeah well they've got to, somebody's got to be the predator exactly I mean, people get mad yeah. people get mad about us hunting all the time well yeah. we've killed off all the other predators so much mm-hmm. that if we don't manage the population that's going to be a huge problem right i was out in uh north northwest missouri i was out there and they're saying I think four or five years ago that there was a big disease that came through and wiped out all their deer. And I can't remember what, it wasn't wasting disease, but it was, um, I can't remember what EHD, it was. EHD probably, epizootic hemorrhagic disease. Might have been, I don't that, know. That might be it. But if it wasn't said, chronic wasting disease. Yeah, he said it wasn't wasting disease, the guy I talked to. But, I mean, it just, he said their deer are all gone. They don't even have deer anymore. Mm-hmm. And if and, you know, that's the yeah. thing is we can either wait around until something like that happens, which is happening. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it disease, happens, absolutely. All that kind of stuff is slowly mm-hmm. becoming more of a big deal. And when it happens, it's usually catastrophic, and it wipes out most of your population. But, I mean, that population you're talking about, it'll recover eventually. Yeah. So, Or right. we can manage it the right way now. Yeah. Have to have exactly. M- make sure your population doesn't get too hot where they spread it too easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, it's... I don't know. It's been kind of frustrating sometimes to talk to people who don't know. 
because mm-hmm. they and like they just don't get it and not in a bad way and not that those people are bad because they just, they just don't know but you know you start talking about hunting and maintaining wildlife and just the environment in general people just don't I don't know there's just not that knowledge base there for it to make sense yeah. and it can be especially like when you start talking to farmers and stuff too because a lot of times they don't even get it when yeah, it comes to wildlife populations mm-hmm. right because uh-huh. I've talked to um, farmers before, and they're like, well, you know, why Why do I have to be the one to, you know, have edge on the side of my property and um, get away from clean farming? Well, a lot of wildlife populations, specifically quail, um, northern bobwhite quail, you need at least 2,000 acres of connected land area to have a sustainable population. And guess who the majority of the people are that have at least 2,000 acres? Farmers. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really really important um, that we get the knowledge out there. Um, Yeah, that's for sure. I feel like a lot of people think that you know, wildlife management is separate from farming, which is separate from maintaining the earth and the soil and that kind of stuff. I, people seem to always want to try to put those in separate spheres. No, they're all interconnected. Yeah, it's all they're, the same thing. Yeah, exactly. We're just sharing our common resources. Yeah. we got to manage it so we can see it in perpetuity. Yeah, that's for sure. And I think we're slowly getting that way. I mean, a lot of the... Because, you know, we started off talking about clean farming and, and having those edge rows and stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of that kind of went back to... Um, it, it went back to the Nixon administration. It didn't have anything to do with Nixon, but the Secretary of Ag at that time, because it was, you know, it was right after, well, not right after World War II, but it was far enough after World War II that we kind of saw where the future was heading a little bit. I mean, we saw the population starting mm-hmm. to increase. We knew that we needed all this food to be grown. They just so wanted they to increase out, production. Yeah, they just needed yeah. to increase production to feed more people. Makes total sense. Mm-hmm. So they came out with this big program. Um, kind of like the catchphrase of it was fence row to fence row. So we need to use all of our land from fence row to fence row. We need to be, everything needs to be in production that it can be in it, which made sense at the time because it needed to be mm-hmm. that way. Well, now, I mean, we have, we grow way more food in this country than we need for our people. Mm-hmm. We have completely saturated the market. We sell overseas a lot of stuff. And, and not to get too much into like politics and trade and that kind of stuff. I mean, we don't necessarily need to be doing some of that anymore. I mean, you talk about those edge rows and stuff. That extra 10 feet at the end of the day is not going to make or break me. And in exactly. all honesty, if I didn't plant that in seed, if I didn't have to spread fertilizer and herbicide mm-hmm. and pesticide and stuff all over the top of it, I probably would end up saving money at the end of the day. You might, yeah. Right. Or make more. But yeah. people just don't realize it because that's been the standard for so long. Right. We've just been doing it for 40 years now. And right. so that shift, and it's, you know, I see it in different parts of the world and different things. I mean, the organic people tend to be a lot more into that kind of stuff. Um, and organic is kind of its own little can of worms as far as a lot of the weird quirks about organic farming. But, I mean, you just see, as, you know, the price of stuff starts to fall. I mean, it begins to make more economic sense that, hey, maybe we don't have to put all of this land in production. Yeah. Especially when you get out in the Midwest and the Corn Belt. I mean, they've got all that CRP land that conservation reserve program Mm -hmm. yeah it takes that land out of use for i think at least 10 years yeah that's one thing we have here in the southeast also is if your land is currently being used as agriculture purposes whatever you can convert that to crp plant it in longleaf and the government will fund that they'll come out and plant it 
I guess the Forest Service. They'll come out and plant it, and they'll give you tax write-offs or whatever. So it's beneficial, yeah, of- and it provides the habitat that you need for quail, deer, turkeys, any any other game, and even non-game it produces a lot of habitat. Yeah, that's for sure. There's a lot of opportunities out there to start doing more. Mm-hmm. Because like a cotton field, that's basically a biological desert. How much? How many animals do you actually see out in the middle of a cotton field? None. So hardly. Yeah. Well, and you'll see them out there, but the thing is, that's not... They don't stay. Well, nothing eats cotton. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing right. really out there for yeah. them. And you don't see... I mean, unless you're looking at a big field of grass. I mean, you don't really see very many natural places mm-hmm. that have all of one kind of plant there. Yeah. There's variety. And I get that that doesn't work in production ag because it really doesn't. Uh, people can make some arguments that you can do like permaculture and different stuff. But unless you're trying to grow an orchard or something, mm-hmm. you've really only got to do one thing at a time, which is fine. But we've yeah, we've definitely got to get back into providing that land for people to use because otherwise it's not going to get done. Right. That's for sure. So Kyle, you do a lot of work down on the coast, right? I do. I lived on Dolphin Island this past summer and i had a blast it was it was really fun i worked for a private boat owner kind of and i helped him build a place down there do a lot of fishing that's pretty sweet and that's and, that's down around gulf shores right yeah it's just west of gulf shores on a little island called dolphin island it's in alabama that's pretty and sweet i love like redfish conservation in the the cca the conservation or coastal conservation association and I'm actually going to start tagging redfish and trout this upcoming year. And I'm, I'm really excited for that. I'll be working with the Dolphin Island Sea Lab with their tagging program. Hopefully, I'll get to talk to them that's pretty as wild. soon as I get back in May, right after I graduate. That'll so be sweet, yeah. That'll that's the plan, sweet. at least. <laughs> what, um, what do you think about all this plastic stuff in the ocean? I mean, you hear about all these big plastic islands and stuff that you see oh, that yeah. floating around. Well... A lot of the plastic does not even come from the U.S. I've, I read an article that said like 80% of the plastic that you see, I don't, I don't even know if that's the right um, statistic, but a lot of the plastic that you see is not even from America. It's from other foreign countries just dumping their waste out in the ocean and thinking it's going to be okay. Well, no, it, it's, it's really hurting a lot of your like billfish and all of your pelagic species because they depend on those this there's a weed is called sarga or grass it's sargasm grass and that's where they lay their eggs and that's where they're protected as they're growing and if there's if it's just full of plastic i mean they'll start ingesting that stuff and dying so i mean it's not not really great for the environment yeah that's and the ecosystem sure. out there in the gulf yeah well and one thing or too anywhere that- else I was reading about the other day is that we, which in China actually just quit doing this the other day. We used to send billions and billions of pounds of trash to China every single year. We would just ship it over there on boats and then just acted like that. They did the right thing with it. And (laughs) and not to, you know, not to throw China under the bus, not that the Chinese government at all listens to this podcast, but, um, you know, we just, we've kind of pushed a lot of our pollution problems off on other people for yeah. a long time. And I think we're about to have to start answering to that. Probably. Quickly. Yeah, I assume so. Especially with the ocean stuff. I mean, I used to go down to, uh, to like the Destin, Fort Walton Beach area mm-hmm. a lot as a kid and still go down there a good bit. And yeah, I mean, you can definitely tell there's been a huge change in so much more trash washes up on the beach than there used to. 
and just I can only imagine how much stuff is out there floating around. As big as the ocean is, and as much stuff as we've mm-hmm. dumped down in there. I mean, plastic all floats. It'll oh, yeah. all collect back up yeah, together after a while. Yeah, it's not good. So it'll be interesting to see, especially I mean, you think about the big oil spill that we had down there, and mm-hmm. all the different stuff. I don't know. It's definitely affecting some fish out there. Like, I think it affected the tuna population out there because we hardly caught any tuna under 100 pounds this year, which is unheard of usually because most of the time you'll go out there and you'll catch a ton of 60, 40, and 80 pounders. We didn't catch a single one. And a lot of these people that we fish with and know that fish around the same area, they didn't catch those tuna either. So that generation of tuna, they're pretty much gone. I mean, they're still there, but they're really hard to find. They're, they're very scarce. and Yeah, you start taking out those younger generations, it doesn't yeah. take long for you to realize that you're in a serious problem. Hopefully those populations will recover from that, but I don't know. I'm worried about it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, too, because, I mean, you think a lot of the oceans, no one really owns that, so it's mm-hmm. hard to manage that and say, all right, we all yeah. need to stop doing this or start doing that. Or, I mean, because you can do, you know, U.S. waters, which is only, what, 13 miles out? 11 miles out? It's, yeah, it's about, I think, nine miles is nine. Alabama and Florida. Okay. And, and yeah, state and then after that, yeah. federal and... After that, it's just open ocean. Yeah, it really it's is. Maritime law. I mean, mm-hmm. no one really owns it. So it'll be interesting to see how a lot of that turns out. And, you know, they talk, especially with the Gulf, they talk about all that, the pollution and stuff, the runoff coming out of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm not, I don't know. I have some questions about it. I need to talk to somebody who knows more about that. Because I've been reading some stuff. I mean, a lot of the land, the like marshland in Louisiana, mm-hmm. is really getting eat up lately. Yeah. Um, and so much of that is... Really There's a lot of marshland, it, but I guess it, it it's kind of bad, but all that marshland kind of filters it out as it yeah. as that polluted water is coming through before it gets dumped in the Gulf. So that's... But you're starting to see oyster populations decline some, and then your marsh grass is declining as well, and that's bad, so... Yeah, well, that's the thing is I, I'm not necessarily certain that that river isn't. I mean, I'm sure there's pollutants in the river, but I feel like so much of that marshland is eroded away now that it's just not oh, yeah, it's, filtered like it used to. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, and that's a big. Which I was talking to some people out in Louisiana um, when I was out there, and they were saying that that's probably one of the biggest problems in their state is trying to get mm-hmm. all that back under control. So there's people working on it. That's good. Um, but I just don't know that that. I feel like fixing that problem would solve a lot of that because, you know, there's a huge dead zone they always talk about just at the mouth of it and stuff. And I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of that comes from we have just taken out all of that filter. Yeah. And now we expect it to keep working the way it did before. So it'll be interesting to see. There's definitely a lot of big stuff working with the wildlife populations right now. That's for sure. What, uh, what were you working on in your truck? Kyle. Oh, I was just putting a new O2 sensor new in O2 there. O2 sensor in there? Yeah. I feel you. It was easy fix, about 10 minutes. Yeah, that ain't bad. So. I remember, uh, do you think, yeah, I borrowed your socket set the other day when I put my headlights in because I had to take, Oh yeah. That's you pretty right. much have to take the whole front corner panel off yeah. to take the bulbs out of my headlights, which is really dumb. It's crazy. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a thing. You still driving, what'd you call, what do you call that truck, Rob? The black truck? Call it the... The Black Magic Woman. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't remember what you called. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My little black F-150. Still going strong. For sure. Yeah. It's a sweet little truck, though. Yeah. It's got that big bench seat in it. Yeah, it gets, it gets me where I need to go. It's about, sure. about it's 18 years old now, but yeah. she's still... 
Let me say, my truck rolled over 10 this year. My truck's 10 years old. Oh, wow. Goodness. Blows my mind. Mine is 20 years old now. So what is a... 98. Dang. Tacoma. Yeah, that's right, because... Yeah. I'm a 97 model, and I'm 21, so yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's wild. Yeah, trucks... It's one... Trucks at A-Back, just Tifton in general. There's more big trucks here than anywhere else I've ever been in the entire world. Oh, yeah, that's crazy. Like, basically, A-Back is, like, jacked up trucks. I yeah, mean, it's... The big truck capital even world, yeah. E- yeah, even girls, like, you'll see a brand new, like, jacked up truck. You go, yeah. oh, man, that's a nice truck. And you look, driving that, and it's a girl. It's like, yeah, that's, that's Tifton, Georgia for you. Yeah, that's for sure. Which that, um, what is that? That country, you know, that country singer, Kit Moore? She's got yeah. that song... Something about a truck, yeah, which just talks about big trucks. Mm-hmm. He's from Tifton, right? Which makes so much sense. It's oh, like yeah. the Tim, the Tifton anthem. Yeah, that that song definitely describes Tifton for sure. <laughs> very, no doubt. very well. Yep, that's for sure. Well, Kyle's got a Kyle had to run off and do something, um, and I, I think we've got some other stuff to to get headed out on. But uh, thanks for sitting down, Rob. I enjoyed it. It was fun to talk a little bit about wildlife, some different stuff. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a good time. You'll be, uh, but y'all both be graduating here in two, no, in a semester, semester and a half, something like that. Right. Getting close. Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, graduating from college is a fun time, (laughs) which I only got a two-year degree, but I still act like I graduated from college. (laughs) It'll be bittersweet, but I'm ready to get out there and put my degree to work out in the field so i'm excited about it for sure all right well i appreciate it man i'll see you around thank you